We believe that a lot of the artifacts on the Pacific are perfectly preserved. We expect to find incredible artifacts from the ship. There was cargo that was being shipped by Wells Fargo that was insured. We are in negotiations with the underwriters of that cargo to work out a financial arrangement where they get their piece and we get our piece. That amount of gold was $78,000 that was being shipped in 1875. It was gold bars, gold coins, and gold dust. There's speculation that there was more on the ship, but we'll answer that question, I guess, when we dig into the ship and find out what is there. I'm Peter McCulley. On this edition of Today in BC, an update on the recovery of the SS Pacific. Almost 150 years ago, the Pacific left British Columbia on its way to San Francisco and sank off the coast of Washington State with only two survivors aboard and a cargo that could contain as much as 200 pounds of gold. Jeff Hummel updates the salvage efforts for us on this edition of Today in BC. Thanks for chatting with us today, Jeff. Great to be here. Jeff, I'm interested to get an update on the preparations for salvaging the ship. We first chatted back in January of 2023. And for folks who might not be aware, the sinking of the Pacific in 1875 has been called one of the worst marine disasters in the Pacific Northwest. Perhaps you can recap the saga of the ship for those listeners who may not be familiar with the story. Sure. The ship departed Victoria, British Columbia at about nine o'clock in the morning and headed out through the Straits of Juan de Fuca for San Francisco. On board, there was a large group of people, merchants that were headed down to San Francisco to buy their stocks for the next year. There were some gold miners on board. The ship went past Cape Flattery Light around four in the afternoon and then headed out into the Pacific. About 9 p.m., it collided with another vessel called the Orpheus that was northbound. The collision was fatal to the Pacific, and it sank in about 15 or 20 minutes. There were four to 500 people on board, and there were only two survivors. One was in the water for 40 hours, and one was in the water for 80 hours. What kind of vessel are we talking about and the size? The Pacific was 225 feet long. It was about 1,000 gross tons. It was a sidewheel steamer, so it had a steam plant on it, and it had the paddle wheels instead of in the stern. It had them on the sides of the ship. And this was a cargo passenger ship? Yeah, it, it hauled the general cargo from the Puget Sound and from San Francisco up and down the coast, and then had accommodations for anywhere from 200 to, let's say, 400 people, depending on where people wanted to sleep and that sort of thing. So I understand you've been scanning the site in preparation for sending down your remote-controlled robotic dive vehicles. Has anything changed at all since the last time we chatted? I wondered about the ocean currents and whether they would have an effect on the site and perhaps the wreck itself. We've done a great deal of work since we spoke last. A lot of it is just preparing our facilities and the vessel and preparing to recover artifacts we have a great responsibility in making sure that we take care of everything properly that comes up from the ship. And we've done a huge amount of work in making modifications to our vessel. So it has what's called dynamic positioning, which allows it to hold position within a couple of meters on the surface of the ocean. And all this work is in preparation for next season and the major recovery. We're also in the process of building a couple of larger robots that'll be capable of recovering objects from the debris field. And we're in the design process for building the recovery equipment for the main part of the wreck. There are two totally separate operations. One is the debris field, which is about a 200,000 square meter area where we believe we'll find 
various artifacts from the ship, mostly that entered the water right at the surface as the ship was sinking. And then there's the recovery of the ship itself, which is a completely different operation, different type of operation. So you mentioned you're making some changes to the robotic vehicles. What in particular are you doing? The robots that we have right now, some people call them a flying eyeball. They're basically observation robots that just have a little grabber on the front that allow you to just one motion of articulation. We're building larger robots, which are about the size of a small refrigerator. They have two robotic arms on them. One of them is a six-function arm, and the other one is a four-function arm. And we're designing and developing all of that technology ourselves. So how do you control these robotic vehicles when you're talking about recovering artifacts? We're using a unique method. So we plan on having the vessel on site, but the actual robotic operators will be located in Seattle in a control van, and the connection for the data will be through Starlink. So we're putting fiber optic into our ground facility, and then we have a high-speed Starlink terminal on board the vessel. It's high enough speed and has a high enough data capacity so that we can run multiple robots simultaneously from the ocean with operators here. This technology represents a new era that I think we're entering into that most people just aren't aware of, and that's the age of telepresence. So using the Starlink technology and robotic devices, you can manipulate something any place in the world from any other place in the world, and it's going to change a lot of industries a huge amount. So you can imagine mining in Alaska where you've got operators, you've got to be in a remote area. The equipment can be teleoperated from some other place in the world. So we're just a little slice of this new technological era that we're just right at the infancy of. And that must excite Elon Musk to no end. Yeah, he retweeted a story about us back in May. So yeah, he's excited. And we hope to get a little bit of support from them in a few areas to make sure that we have the highest possible speed from their system. Back to the robotic devices for a moment. If one of these is down looking around on the floor of the ocean and spots, say, an old wine bottle that's still corked, how does it get it back up to the surface? At this point of the survey, we probably would just leave it there because we would mark the location. But at some point when we are prepared for the large quantity of items that we're going to bring up, we would bring it up. But Keeping things in situ, as they say, on its site right now preserves it in the best possible way. We're looking for a facility where we can process the the artifacts that we bring back, but it's really a daunting task because we're talking about bringing back literally tons of material and artifacts. It's a huge undertaking, and not to be taken lightly because we don't want to be the guys responsible for destroying some precious artifact that can be very valuable for people to see in the museum in the future. So we have a huge responsibility to make sure that we process all of this material properly. It sounds like the wreck of the Pacific is in remarkable condition. The exact nature of the ship we haven't revealed yet, but I'll just say a little teaser out there that it's on the level of a ship that was found in Sweden called the Vasa or another ship called the SS Arabia, which was found in the Mississippi River, sank in the 1840s, and the artifacts on there were perfectly preserved. We believe that a lot of the artifacts on the Pacific are perfectly preserved. We expect to find things made of wool, things made of leather, potentially paper, preserved food. So if things were in glass containers with a cork or a wax seal on them and they were filled with fluid, they could be completely perfectly preserved. So we expect to find incredible uh, artifacts from the ship.
Is there any technology, Jeff, that detects gold, or will any discoveries have to be made by simply viewing a camera? There isn't anything that will discriminate specifically on gold. There's two types of metal detection capabilities. You can either detect ferrous objects or non-ferrous objects. A vessel like this has a lot of non-ferrous objects, which are not gold. But certainly there's, there is gold in the debris field and there's gold on the ship. At today's prices, if there was 200 pounds of gold on board the Pacific, that would probably be worth about $6 million. What do you know about the cargo aboard and whether there was that much gold aboard or maybe even more? That brings up an interesting aspect of the ship. There was cargo that was being shipped by Wells Fargo that was insured. We are in negotiations with the underwriters of that cargo to work out a financial arrangement where they get their piece and we get our piece. That amount of gold was $78,000 in gold that was being shipped in 1875. It was gold bars, gold coins, and gold dust. There's speculation that there was more on the ship, but we'll answer that question, I guess, when we dig into the ship and find out what is there. Jeff, last time we chatted, you mentioned claimants might be entitled to goods that might be found on board the ship, provided they have proof of ownership. Were there any claims filed? Yeah, actually, there were. There's been three different claims that have been filed in the court process. The court process is basically, it's probate. So we found the ship, and there's people that say, hey, I might have an interest in that ship. They come to the court, and they have to prove that they have an interest in the ship. So we had three people come forward. One of them was a descendant of S.P. Moody, and they have subsequently dropped out of the lawsuit. They were, I think, related to the uncle of S.P. Moody, and so they didn't qualify as a descendant. And then the other two are related to the underwriters, and then another one is related to Francis Garrichet, who is the Wells Fargo agent on board. And those processes are moving through the court process. And the court process basically says, what evidence do you have to support your claim? And then what is the value of your claim? It's not really a contentious sort of procedure. It's just more seeking the truth of the situation. You also mentioned you would update us on tracking down the underwriters and or the owners of the Pacific. It was uh, 150 years ago. So one would assume that the title had changed hands a few times as companies come and go. Yeah, it's an amazing process to dig through all this. So the original owners of the ship were Goodall, Nelson, and Perkins. And we've been able to track through corporate records from Goodall, Nelson, and Perkins all the way up to a modern company which owns the rights to the ship. They don't really necessarily know that they own them. It's just something that through corporate inheritance that takes place when one company merges into another and a company is a successor. And so we have tracked those rights through. We've got about a 70-page report that has all of the documentation covering that. We were able to approach this multi-billion dollar French multinational and get them to transfer their ownership interests in the ship to the Northwest Shipwreck Alliance. And then the Shipwreck Alliance has transferred certain rights to Rockfish, which enables us to have a controlling interest in the hull. This is important. The hull was valued at $100,000, and it was insured for $47,500. And so the original owners have the controlling interest in the rights to that ship, and now we have acquired those rights. And so we are the discoverers of the ship. We have exclusive salvage rights, and we also are the owners of the hull. And this is unusual in most shipwreck projects. You usually don't get that sort of ownership rights. It's very unusual. And then we're about to enter into an agreement with the underwriters of the cargo, and that kind of locks up 
all the key areas on the legal side of the question. When Today in BC continues, Jeff Hummel talks about what they expect to find on the Pacific, the team, and preserving the history of the vessel. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Jeff, you talked about some of the items that you hope to find as you proceed with the recovery operations, and the wreck you mentioned is in pretty good condition. Are there any other items that you might keep your eye peeled for? There's a couple of mysteries about the sinking of the ship that I hope to answer. One, was the condition of the ship something that led to the sinking? There was a lot of speculation, a lot of blame spread around after the ship sank, saying it was an unsound condition and that sort of thing. We expect to be able to answer that question about was the ship seaworthy or not. Another one relates to one of the two artifacts that we've recovered so far, which was one of them was a fire brick. So we brought up some wood from the ship and we brought up this fire brick. We found the fire brick in the vicinity of the debris field. And it's clearly from inside the steam apparatus, inside the boiler. It's not a complete brick. It was broken when it departed the ship. And the question is, how big was the explosion? What sort of impact did that have on the sinking of the ship? Clearly, we found something from inside the boiler, outside of the ship, and on the bottom, far away from where the ship is. So the explosion must have had some degree of violence to it. We're curious to characterize that. There's very little information in the testimony of the survivors about that. One of the bodies that was recovered was scalded and had a large laceration on this woman's leg. So we know that there was some violent event, but was it a gigantic explosion, small rupture? We don't know. Those are things that we'll be able to answer by investigating the wreck site further. You talked about the seasons of exploring the vessel. How long a period of time are we talking about for you and the team to explore the debris field and the Pacific itself? And when does that begin? We're about to go out in a couple of weeks on an exploratory mission to further characterize the site. When we discovered the ship, we had a side scan sonar, which kind of gives you an aerial photograph of the bottom, and we had the robotic equipment. But there's other equipment that we can use to further define and refine our understanding of the ship. So we're bringing out a device that looks into the mud, into the bottom, to see how deep in the mud maybe the paddle wheels have sunk and that sort of thing. We're bringing out some metal detecting equipment, which will characterize where all of the major debris ended up on the bottom. A lot of it is very slightly buried, and so we be using metal detection equipment. We can say, okay, there's iron debris that traveled this far from the ship from the explosion, for example. We're also using a high-resolution sonar, which will give us a really beautiful 3D map of the entire site at centimeter-level resolution. And so imagine we've got this huge area, we're going to cover it, and we'll have a very detailed centimeter-resolution image of the area. Uh, we're also bringing out a high-resolution side-scan sonar, which will give us, a, let's say, a better aerial photograph. Instead of maybe being able to see something the size of a basketball, now we can see something the size of a coffee mug. How big is the team that's working on the recovery effort at this point, Jeff? There's about 30 people involved. There's a core team of about a dozen people. We have two different groups. We've got a group of captains and people who help run the vessel. And then we have a technical team 
which you know is building the robots and some of the other equipment that is involved in the next steps of the project. Will there be any camera crews following you around as those salvage efforts get underway? I know you were talking to some companies about the possibility of an unscripted docu-series, which seems to be a kind of a, a popular television show these days. We are still working on that. We've spent a lot of time in negotiations with some very important companies and we're making progress, but no contracts have been signed, partly due to the the different strikes that are going on right now. That just complicates the legal process because the lawyers are doing other things that they think are more important than talking to us. We are making progress and I do fully expect to have an unscripted TV series on one of the major networks about the project. So that is moving forward. Excellent. I understand that once the recovery is complete, the Northwest Shipwreck Alliance hopes to create a museum dedicated to the Pacific and some of these artifacts that you're bringing back. Absolutely. That is clearly our goal. We believe that the quality of the artifacts are going to be world-class, that there will never be another ship similar to this found from this particular era. And so we do want to build a world-class museum on the Seattle waterfront. We've had meetings with the mayor and different people to talk about that. And it's an ongoing process. It's a huge undertaking. We expect the budget to build a museum to be around $200 million. And we're a nonprofit, so that money has to come from other sources. We are fully engaged in that process. It's very challenging. There's limited space on the Seattle waterfront. There's other people contending for the same location. We just have to make a case that we think this is a great project for the Seattle waterfront. I'd like to thank Jeff Hummel for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, YouTube, and Google Podcasts. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green. Offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media.